0: And I'm sure, I'm really sorry to interrupt you, but uh, we, there'll be lots of time afterwards. There is, of course, tea and coffee on the table just out the back there afterwards. So, do please resume those conversations uh, later on. We must come to our Bible reading, which this evening is from Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, it's on page 740. If you want to follow in one of the Pew Bibles, alternatively, it'll be up on the screen in just a moment. Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities." The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And He will divide the spoils with the strong, because He poured out His life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. May God be pleased to bless to us that reading from His Word. Some people in church this evening will have read some of those lines, heard some of those lines, and immediately thought of Handel's Messiah. And if you have never heard the Messiah or you want to hear part of it again, this coming Christmas time it will be either the last Sunday of November or the first Sunday of December. The Plymouth Philharmonic Choir will be performing part one of the Messiah, which puts lots of those verses to beautiful music Uh, and really brings the passage alive. So, for example, all we like sheep have gone astray. All the different voice parts and all the different instrumental parts go all over the place as a musical picture of the sheep wandering all over the place. That's a little plug, a little advert for later in the year. But that dates from 1718. I think that was the first performance in Dublin. In much more recent times, there's been a film all about this called The Passion of the Christ. It was made by an Australian actor who earlier, when he was younger, had starred as a young soldier in a film by the name Gallipoli. Anybody remember the name of the Australian actor? Mel Gibson. Somebody had it down. There we are. Well done, you. Now, whether you saw the film or not, it stirred up a great deal of controversy just a few years ago. Here's a selection of some of the headlines at the time. Passions run high over violent act of faith by Mel Gibson. Hysteria in the United States over Gibson's passion. Passion ignites world audiences, and so it went on. But a lot of the controversy was like a kind of smokescreen, obscuring the most important question, which is not actually about the film at all. It's this, what really is the significance of the suffering and death of Jesus of Nazareth. Why is that single death still so important 2,000 years later? The truth is that during the last century alone, to our eternal shame, tens of millions of men and women and children have died brutal deaths at the hands of their fellow men. Last week on holiday in Germany, we visited where we used to live and serve uh, in Seven Armoured Brigade. Uh, we went to visit Bostel. we went to visit Hona, went to visit Sella. And in Hona camp, you are literally over the fence from Bergen Belsen, a concentration camp, not even an extermination camp, simply a concentration camp where, because of the conditions, because of the malnutrition, the disease, and the brutality, tens of thousands died there, including Anne Frank. I know a lot of people study the diary of Anne Frank when they're in school. Lots and lots, and, and an unimaginable, unimaginable number of people put to death at the hands of fellow human beings. What's special about Jesus' death, this death? To help us understand this a little bit more fully, I want to answer four related questions this evening, and the first of them is just about to come up on the screen. It's this How do we make sense of the suffering and death of Jesus? Secondly is the next question on the screen, who is this Jesus who suffered and died on that cross? Thirdly, why? Why did Jesus suffer and die on that cross? Fourthly and finally, How? How do we respond to what Jesus has done for us through His suffering and death? First then, the first question, how do we make sense of the suffering and death of Jesus? This is something the film, The Passion, gets right, because the opening frame is a quotation from the Bible, and it's our text for this evening as we look in this short series on verses that changed the world. It's Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed." And the prophecy continues, as we heard a moment ago, and we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The truth is that the only way to make sense of the suffering and death of Jesus is to go back and see what the Bible says about it. The Bible's a collection of documents, which is the only detailed source we have for what actually happened in those fateful few days leading to Jesus' death. And it's the Bible which also gives us the authoritative interpretation of the significance of His death. Why do I say the Bible is the key to the truth here? Because what the Bible says about the cross, even centuries before it took place, fits together in the most amazing, astonishing way. Isaiah is writing around 750 years B.C., before Christ, and look how Christ fulfilled the prophecy, fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. And also because that's the Bible's claim about itself. The Bible claims to be true and to have God as well as men for its author, a claim that I, along with Christians down the ages, find utterly convincing and i also say that the bible gives us the truth about the cross because jesus himself pointed to the bible as explaining what he was doing you have to come to your own conclusion about whether the bible is god's word as it claims but well, that's my answer to the first question how do we go about making sense of the suffering and death of jesus we go to the bible and listen to what it has to say second question who is this Jesus who suffered and died on that cross? Well, what did Jesus Himself claim about who He was? That passage in Isaiah, as I say, it's a prophecy given 700 plus years before the birth of Jesus. It relates to a man who is called God's servant, who's been appointed by God to save His people throughout the world. This passage is one part of Isaiah's prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. Messiah and Christ mean the same thing, God's chosen King. Now, Jesus applies this prophecy of Isaiah about the suffering servant to Himself. On the night before He died, Jesus said to His disciples, it is written, that is to say this is in the Bible, And he quotes, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And Jesus went on, I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. That quotation, he was numbered with the transgressors, we read it earlier, comes directly from the suffering servant prophecy in Isaiah 53 verse 12. In other words, Jesus says directly, even as He is preparing to be put to death, that this prophecy is all about Him. He is the suffering servant of God. So, what Isaiah says about the significance of the death of God's servant tells us what is the significance of Jesus' suffering and death. As you know Jesus also claimed directly to be the Messiah just to give one example of many we could choose when the disciple Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah Jesus tells him that he's right and what's more he says that Peter did not work it out for himself God has shown him the truth if you want to follow that up you can find it in Matthew 16:16 16, 16. So Jesus agrees that he is the Messiah And in the same breath, He speaks of God as His own Father. And Jesus then tells His disciples more. Matthew writes, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that He must be killed and on the third day be raised Life. This is not the kind of Messiah that Jesus, for one, was expecting, but Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him. How is Jesus, the Messiah, going to bring in his kingdom? By dying at the hands of his enemies. Why? We often admire the courage and the sacrifice of people who give their lives attempting to rescue others. Do you remember where you were? Some of you were very young indeed, maybe one or two not even born. I can't do the arithmetic quickly enough now at my advanced age. Do you remember 9-11, 11th of September 2001? You'll probably remember exactly where you were then. I was in Kosovo serving with British troops there, came in from visiting troops in one of the uh, other locations back into Waterloo Lines, Podievo and here there were some people clustered around a television set, uh, and usually at that time in the late afternoon, and uh, we watched, well, I watched it happen from that point onwards. One of those who escaped from high up in one of the blazing twin towers of the World Trade Center described how, as he was desperately making his way down floor by floor, firefighters were climbing up the stairs to try and rescue people he expressed his admiration for them but many of them died those firefighters in that failed attempt to save those trapped at the top the death of jesus was not going to be a useless death jesus said later that he would die to give his life a ransom for many that's mark 10:45 in other words his death would be the price that had to be paid so that we could escape eternal death and hell and find forgiveness and eternal life. But before He died, Jesus said that He wouldn't stay dead. He would be raised from death to live forever. He would defeat death. And that would be God's proof that Jesus really is the Savior and Lord of the world. That's who Jesus said That he was, the question for each one of us and indeed every person is who do I say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? He claimed to be the Son of God and the Savior and Lord of the world. We need to know if that's true. If you're not clear in your own mind who Jesus is, then please investigate further. Don't just leave it. One of the best ways to do that is to get together with a few other people and to look together at the source documents that tell us about Him, which are collected here in the Bible. You can do that in different ways. You can do, when we run it sometime, the Alpha course again. You can do it by doing the Christianity Explored course. It's a really helpful thing to do. C.S. Lewis, very famous professor from Oxbridge in a slightly previous generation now, he sums up the central issue here in a very famous passage about the identity of Jesus. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. That, Lewis continues, is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, Lewis continues. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call Him Lord and and God. It's not enough to see Jesus as just an extraordinary person. Even those who are not Christians can accept Him as the example of a flawless life. Mahatma Gandhi once said, the gentle figure of Christ, so patient, so kind, so loving, so full of forgiveness that he taught his followers not to retaliate when abused or struck, but to turn the other cheek. It was a beautiful example, Gandhi says, of the perfect man. But Gandhi refused to accept the uniqueness of Christ. He believed that all religions are equal. You can't have Christ without Christ's teaching. You can't have His teaching without His claims about Himself which make Him equal with God. There can be no half-measures when we answer this question that Jesus puts to each one of us, who do you say I am? If we say with Peter, the Christ, the Son of the living God, then we're setting our faces against every other worldview. As one Christian writer puts it, quote, Islam says Jesus was not crucified We Christians say he was. Only one of us can be right. Judaism says Jesus was not the Messiah. We say he was. Only one of us can be right. Hinduism says that God has often been incarnate. We say only once. We can't both be right. Buddhism says that the world's miseries will end when we do what's right. We say. We can't do what's right. The world's miseries will end when we believe what's right. Now, I know that last phrase needs a bit of unpacking. And of course, ultimately, the world's miseries will end when God takes His people home to heaven where there's no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more suffering, no more pain what's our answer to the question of who Jesus is? It's the most crucial question we'll ever face, the most crucial question anyone ever faces. What Christians say, because the Bible says it, and because Jesus Himself said it, is that Jesus is the suffering servant of God. He is the Christ, God's chosen King, and He's the Son of God who is this Jesus who suffered and died. That's who He is. Thirdly, why? Why did Jesus suffer and die on that cross? Here are three reasons that come from the Bible and not least from this prophecy of Isaiah. Reason one, we're lost. Reason two, Jesus has compassion on us. Reason three, Jesus acted to rescue us. Look again at Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. We're like lost sheep, and in the end, we only have ourselves to blame. We've said no to God, no to going God's way, no to staying close to God, and if they're not rescued, lost sheep die. When I worked in Catterick, and we lived in Catterick, Garrison Every Saturday we would take the children and the dog for a walk in a different one of the Yorkshire Dales, if you've ever been up there. It's much friendlier terrain than the rigors of the Middle Eastern deserts. Yet several times we found the rotting carcasses of dead sheep that had strayed away from the safety of the flock and the farmer. To willfully stray away from God is to rebel against Him, and God cannot tolerate rebellion. What we deserve is an eternity suffering the consequences of our choice to cut ourselves off from God. That's what hell is. That's what we deserve. We are lost. There's a phrase that's almost entered our vocabulary thanks to one of my two favorite comedies, Favorite comedy number one is Yes Minister, followed, of course, by the sequel Yes Prime Minister, and the other one is Dad's Army. Do you remember the elderly gentleman of the Walmington on Sea platoon? Well, apart from Walker, who's uh, maybe middle aged or younger than that, and Pike, of course, is quite young. And they get up to all kinds of antics, and Private Fraser who's the Scot. He's the man who, in a very early episode, is asked by Mannering if he has any previous military service. And Fraser draws himself up and says, I got Mannering, chief petty officer, Royal Navy. But what is, what is he best known for? Fraser, of course, that phrase, I got Mannering, we're doomed, doomed. And we laugh about that. Now, it is funny. And it's a very funny comedy. But this is deadly serious. We are doomed unless we are rescued. Thank God He doesn't want us who are like lost sheep to be lost for all eternity. Why? Because He has compassion on us. That is not what we deserve. But God sent His Son on a rescue mission, and the Son shares the compassion of the Father. The Bible says, when He saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's Matthew 9.36. It's a powerful, gut-wrenching compassion that's being described. Jesus could have been aloof and indifferent. He was not. He could with justice have been condemnatory and dismissive. He was not. He could have made excuses for people and downplayed their sins. saying, Oh, it doesn't matter really. Someone's lived well, people are saying it's a sinful life, oh, they're just a colourful character. But he doesn't do that either. In Matthew seven eleven, his one word description of the state of heart of the crowd is evil. He could have despised the crowd, he could have hated the crowd, which would soon turn on him and tear him down but instead his heart went out to them. Now, here's a little illustration I've never used before apart from this morning in a different church. It came to me last week on holiday in Germany. We were visiting one of the places we used to live and remembering my uh, time, our time with a particular Scottish battalion, and it suddenly occurred to me, here's an illustration for Sunday. When I arrived there, I met the quartermaster, the oldest member of the officer's mess. Uh, I asked him when he joined the battalion. He said, 1963. I said, Harry, that's the year I was born. Uh, He said, yes, uh, when I joined the battalion, you didn't get a sleeping bag and a survival bag, and what we have nowadays, your sleeping system was two U.S. blankets on your back, and that was it for your sleeping system. Harry was a great guy, real character. Uh, One other officer once described him as having hair that was uh, gray tinged with a hint of tobacco. And um, he was quite mellow because he'd made quartermaster, he'd made major. He had joined as a private soldier back in 63 made his way right up to become regimental sergeant major of the 1st Battalion. And although he'd mellowed when we knew him, he'd been quite fierce as the RSM back in Berlin when the battalion was in Berlin some years previously. Now, now that he was a good friend, another friend of mine worked in the MT platoon, the motor transport platoon. He was a corporal. But back in Berlin, he was a brand new young soldier, just married with a young child. It so happened that this soldier's quarter in Berlin was very close to the RSM's quarter. This particular RSM, Harry, wherever the battalion went, he had the prize garden. He put a lot of time and effort into that garden and the the garden along the road from us. When we lived in Palombostal there, it was the garden in the whole street, Queen's Avenue. Back to Berlin. Here's this young jock, this young soldier. He knows the RSM's quarters. They're quite close to his. And he knows the RSM has this fantastic, prize-winning garden. Can you imagine what went through that soldier's mind as he came home from work one day, turned the corner, there's the RSM's quarter, and the soldier's young child is in the garden. And the child is tearing up the flowers from the garden. The soldier thought, I'd better do a runner now. (laughs) Well, life will not be worth living if the RSM appeared. And then it got even worse. He'd almost had a heart attack, the poor young soldier at this stage. And then the RSM comes around the corner, sees the child pulling up his prize, flowers. And the soldier thought, my life is about to end. I mean, what's going to happen? Will the child get a clip around the ear? Will I be jailed? Because in those days, RSM could jail. Off to the jail, and off they would be marched to the jail. Um, Hopefully not to be forgotten about there. And this fierce RSM, to the soldier's amazement and astonishment, instead of blowing and blasting the child verbally out of the garden towards the arms of the child's father... And instead of saying, Who's your feather? <laughs> Wait till I get my hands on him. He got down beside the child and taught the child how to plant the bulbs, how to plant the flowers. He had every right to be pretty angry at his prize garden being destroyed by a toddler. But that was what he did. He got down beside the child, showed the child what to do. Isn't that a little picture of God? Instead of consigning us to outer darkness, which is what we would deserve getting down beside us, condescending in the incarnation to come down to be one of us and showing us how to live. He sees that we wander around like stupid lost sheep. We follow whoever happens to be in front, even though they have no idea where they're going. We sometimes get ourselves into deeper and deeper trouble with not the slightest hope of ever extricating ourselves from the valley of death into which we've got ourselves trapped. We're harassed help us like sheep without a shepherd. It's a very graphic metaphor. It's a description of us, of all humanity. And Christ looks at us and has compassion, God's compassion, because that's who He is. And His compassion, of course, led Him to the cross because that's what it took to rescue us we see crosses all over the place. We see there's a cross, of course, behind that screen. You see it at the nine o'clock service every Sunday morning if you're here. We see crosses all over the place in the forces. If you wear Combat 95 or the latest one, Multi-Terrain Pattern MTP, you see any chaplain in the forces, he or she, be he or she in the Royal Navy or the Army or the Royal Air Force, whatever rank or equivalent relative rank they have, whatever they're wearing as a badge of rank or just a navy badge on the lapels here will be two crosses to remind him or her and to remind everybody else that that's what they're there for, to speak to people of the God who came down to show us how to live, the God who came down indeed to lay his life down and die to rescue us. One of the closest friends of Jesus during his earthly life, the Apostle John, who was there at the cross watching Jesus die He says this in 1 John 3, and this is so important because we can get very used to seeing crosses all over the place and very familiar with that image. This is what it's about. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. Again, he says a bit later in 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Let that sink in further for a moment. He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What does it mean to say that the death of Jesus is an atoning sacrifice For our sins, it means that the suffering and death of Jesus was the price that had to be paid so that we do not have to pay the price of our rebellion and sin against God. That price would have been an eternity, suffering all that it means to be cut off from God, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He suffered our punishment, so we don't have to. Our iniquity, our rebellion against God, all the sin, all the evil that flows from that was laid on Him as if He was the one who'd committed it, not us. He substituted Himself for us. He paid our debt to God. He served our sentence. He died our death. He sacrificed Himself to set us free. His death was an atoning sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Happened once for all. The Greek word is hapax, once for all, never to be repeated. That's why when we come to the Lord's Supper just shortly, this isn't a sacrifice that's happening here. It's to enable us to remember the sacrifice once for all. God wants His lost sheep back in the fold. Jesus came to bring us back. What's Jesus willing to do to rescue us? The simple answer is anything it takes, whatever the cost, He'll do anything it takes. Why? Because of His amazing love, His amazing grace that we began the service singing about. He wants us to know eternal life with Him. It took suffering and death on a cross. That then is the third answer. Why did Jesus go through that? to save us from death and hell. That's His costly gift to us. We have to turn back to Him and receive that gift empty-handed. We don't add anything. We simply receive it. We have to do the same as that thief, remember, who was hanging, dying on a cross next to Jesus, who said, Lord, remember me when You come into Your kingdom, who believed that Jesus was the King and entrusted His life to Him, And Jesus, of course, responds today, You will be with me in paradise. That brings us to the fourth and final question how? How do we respond to what Jesus has done for us through his suffering and death? Well, we need to, if we need to, investigate until we find the truth. We need to trust our lives to Jesus, we need to live. For him. We need to realize that God is the one with the right to be angry with us, not the other way around. He has nothing to apologize to us for. Far from it. We've robbed him, rebelled against him, ignored him, neglected him, opposed him to his face even. But instead of turning his back on us forever, God has sent his son to die for us. Our debt is paid. We can be forgiven. We can come back home to our heavenly Father, we can receive eternal life. Now, maybe you think that's all too much to handle at the moment. Maybe you don't fully understand it. None of us fully understand it, but we've still to act on what we know or you're not sure it's true, or you want to take a closer look at the Bible for yourself before you make decisions based on what it says, or you just have more questions about Jesus that you want to find answers to before you can think of taking things any further. If that's you, I would just say, please don't stop. Continue to investigate. Maybe you do feel ready to believe in Jesus and trust your life to Him. If so, Then just tell him. Talk to him in the silence of your own heart. He promises to hear. He promises to accept you back into God's family. Talk to him and then start learning how to live for him. Those are all important ways to respond to what Jesus has done for us. The final point I want to make is simply this that one of our responses must surely be that we remember Jesus' suffering and death as being of essential importance, of the very highest significance. There are lots and lots and lots of issues. There are 101 issues. There are 1,001 issues which are secondary issues, issues which we must agree to disagree about if we need to disagree about them. Uh, remember what it says. It's not something for me. It was said a long, long time ago now unity in essentials, liberty in non essentials, and in everything, love. What we're talking about this evening is essential. It's first order, it's primary. This is what Christians have always believed. If we had more time, I could take you and show you chapter and verse. We could go to the 39 Articles of the Church of England. We could go to the Westminster Confession of Faith of the Church of Scotland. We could go to different Baptist confessions. We could go to the Methodists, to the Wesleys, to the writings of John Wesley, to the hymns of Charles Wesley, and it would all be there. We could demonstrate that. It is really, really important. It's a first-order issue, this. It's a primary issue. And that means sometimes, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples from, well, the past hundred years anyway, one of them six years ago and the other one from the 1920s, Christians have felt it necessary to take a stand on this because it's a primary issue. The death of Jesus in our room and stead, the death of Jesus in our place, the substitutionary atonement Of Jesus, as Andy was saying this morning at the 9 o'clock service that I was at, and I'm sure he said the same at the 10.30 that I was obviously elsewhere for. It is just so important. A couple of examples of that. One comes from the life of John Stott, one of the most significant Christian leaders God raised up in the last hundred years. John Stott went to university at Cambridge, and in this biography of Dr. Stott, we read as follows. Uh, And in in fact, at this point the the writer is simply quoting what John Stott says in The Cross of Christ. He's talking about the Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union, always known by its initials and pronounced KICU. KICU members were conscious of standing in the tradition of Tyndale, Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer, the great names of the Cambridge Reformation. They also looked back with pride and affection to Charles Simeon, who for 54 years until 1836, as vicar of Holy Trinity Church, had faithfully expounded the Scriptures, and as his memorial plaque testifies, whether as the ground of his own hopes or as the subject of all his ministrations, determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's not surprising, therefore, that they were becoming increasingly disenchanted with the liberal tendencies of the student Christian movement, and especially with its weak doctrines of the Bible, the cross, and even the deity of Jesus. So when the General Secretary of the SCM met KQ members in… wasn't the 1920s, sorry, it was March 1910, the vote to disaffiliate the union was taken. After the First World War ended in 1918, many ex-servicemen went up to Cambridge as students. Kikyu was by now much smaller than the SCM, yet the SCM leaders made overtures to the Kikyu, hoping that they would rejoin and supply the missing devotional warmth and evangelistic thrust to resolve the issue. A Mr. Dick and a Mr. Grubb, the president and secretary of Kikyu, met the SCM committee in the rooms in Trinity Great Court of their secretary, Mr. Pelly. Here is Norman Grubb's own account of the crucial issue. After an hour's talk, I asked Rollo point-blank, does the SCM put the atoning blood of Jesus Christ central? He hesitated and then said, well, we acknowledge it, but not necessarily central. Dan and I then said that this settled the matter for us in the Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union. We could never join something that did not maintain the atoning blood of Jesus Christ as its center. And we parted company, no doubt with, with great pain and with great sorrow, but they felt they had to take that stand because this is a primary First order issue. The other illustration from just six years ago, Andy mentioned it this morning. I know uh, was was this. Um, this is one of the one of the ramifications. Anyway, uh, for fourteen years until two thousand and seven, Spring Harvest and Keswick Ministries and the Universities and Colleges Christian Fellowship (UCCF) combined. To run a very successful week every Easter as part of the Spring Harvest Programme called Word Alive. I'm not going to go into that uh, issue further. If you want to look it up, just Google Richard Cunningham, who's still the director of UCCF, and look at some of the coverage at the time, just six years ago. It's not my place to say what we necessarily should think and believe about how exactly to act. When there's there's this kind of tension, this kind of disagreement about a first order issue, Uh, but it is a first order issue. It is primary. It is so very very important how we respond to what Jesus has done for us through His suffering and His death. Because of a a particular uh, minister and uh, his relationship with Spring Harvest uh, Keswick and UCCF, had to pull out. They felt they had to pull out from that and. Word Alive became New Word Alive. I think it's back to being called Word Alive, and it's every Easter time up at Prestatyn in North Wales. Two illustrations then, one from, uh, well, both connected with student work of Christians who realized how important an issue this was, and at a certain point had to draw a line in the sand, and with great pain and wishing God's blessing on the others involved in the controversy, had to say, no, we, can't, no, we can no longer take part in this because this must be central, that He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. If those who are helping to distribute uh, the elements that the Holy Communion would like